You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. To folks first on the Philippines, over past weeks we've focused on the, the brutal murder of activists in the Philippines. Activists for peace, justice, human rights, workers' rights, peasants' rights and human rights defenders. Now I'm reading from a news release from the 19th of August from the International Campaign for Human Rights in the Philippines and it refers to another state murder of a Filipina human rights worker. We mourn the killing of human rights worker Zara Alvarez, a brave and staunch defender of farmers and Filipino rights, said the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. The statement comes after the murder of Alvarez by State Death Squad last 17th of August in Bacolod City, Negros Occidental, Central Philippines. Human rights defenders, farmers, farm workers and civilians are being slayed one after the other with brazen impunity. The Duterte government's policy of political killings merits international condemnation. These are our colleagues and fellow human rights advocates who are being killed like cattle, said ICHRP Chairperson Peter Murphy. Sarah Alvarez, 39, a local paralegal for Tabakbatan, Negros Island and a single mother. Alvarez is the 13th member of the National Human Rights Alliance, Carapatan, murdered under the Duterte government and the second case of political killings in just a week. It follows the assassination of peasant leader and peace consultant Randall Echanis on the 10th of August. Alvarez was one of the paralegals who helped bring the cases of the human rights violations in Negros to the UN Human Rights Council. Last December 2019, a high-level delegation of lawmakers, church people and trade unionists visited Bacolod City with the help of Alvarez, who at the time was also a victim of harassment and retagging. This is so tragic. Zara was a brave defender of the poor and their rights. We witnessed in our visit to Negros her undeniable dedication to human rights work. We extend our condolences to the bereaved family and colleagues, said ICHRP Vice Chairperson the Reverend Yong Win Wu who was part of the high-level delegation last December. Following the visit, the high-level delegation made a submission to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, which released a comprehensive report last June on the human rights atrocities in the country. The report detailed the OHCHR requested but did not receive government figures on killings of human rights defenders, but credible civil society sources have compiled details lists documenting hundreds of killings. OHCHR has itself verified the killing of 208 human rights defenders, journalists and trade unionists, including 30 women, between January 2015 and December 2019. The High Commissioner's report cited the danger of public labelling and red-tagging in Negros. Alvarez's name and photo 
appeared on public posters tagging her as a terrorist. Now Alvarez is the fifth person on the poster to be murdered. The other murder cases remain unresolved. Accident, Aide Flores, Lawyer Benjamin Ramos Jr., City Councillor Bernardino Patigas and Lawyer Anthony Trinidad. We invite everyone to condemn the ongoing crackdown against activists and civilians in the Philippines. Let us honour Zara and the hundreds of slain community leaders by incessantly seeking justice and accountability. We are one with the Filipino people in this battle against tyranny, says Murphy. A global day of action for justice for Alvarez and all the victims of extrajudicial killing takes place today. And that was dated Wednesday the 19th of August. And now on the program, Walking for Palestine. A long interview with John Salisbury talking about his efforts toward peace with justice for Palestinians worldwide. A tribute to Paddy Garrity who died on the 16th of August when the people at Victorian Trades Hall heard of his death. They placed the flag at half-mast. His friend and comrade Kevin Bracken will speak briefly about that friendship. Bob Phelps, the director of the Genetics Network, looking at pandemics, viruses, glycosate and the ethics of animal experimentation. And finally, we have it, a kafia face mask, and I'll be speaking with Barbara Block for Palestine Fair Trade Australia. But he's back, the invincible Mr. Kevin Healy. A weak Jane listener, when the dynamic market forces success of privatising aged care dominates the dominant COVID news. The privatised sector, a federal responsibility, big supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, resolved the responsibility problem by declaring he was not responsible. Uh, so you're not responsible for what you're responsible for. Quite simply, this is not the time to play partisan politics. This is the time for sharing responsibility in the national interest. And in this case, the buck stops in Spring Street, uh, which has no responsibility for privatised aged care. It obviously has just told you the buck stops there. Oh, well, that's him off the hook. An inquiry into a gas explosion in May at Anglo and the Dark Americans Grosvenor coal mine heard there were 14 HPIs or high potential incidents leading up to the explosion in which several workers were badly burned. Anglo, which boasts an impeccable record of environmental and social destruction all over the world, including suing governments which get a bit upset about it destroying their environment, was convicted over a worker's death in 2016 and has been charged over another death last year, but none of this reflects on its commitment to worker safety. Gas management has been an issue to achieve our business goals, the company admitted, but safety has always been the priority. Um, then why not close the mine down altogether, knowing methane was a constant threat? I said safety was a priority, uh, but, but that would have kept the workers safe. Oh, oh, workers? No, no, I meant the safety of our profits, of our business goals. Having said that, that does not mean that a, at Anglo in the dark we don't care about the safety of our workers, especially if they keep charging us all the time just for killing them. 
despite threats and much publicised legislation, what are the odds of a boardroom and management being marched into court and then off to jail for the ongoing murder of and injury to workers? On great resource fossil economics, not often we can proffer advice on the greatest little economic order of them all to the great proponents of the greatest little, but corporate regulator Rod Sims. See, as the government pushes for more and more gas and liquefied natural gas to keep fossilising the country, urged on by its hand-picked economic reconstruction committee loaded with barons of the fossil industry, the FOSS Dills, just as the world price collapses, it turns out the great corporates are exporting LNG at lower rates than they're charging us domestically, with domestic prices increasing despite a world record low world price. We can't understand, Rod said, why they're doing that. Rod, sit down. Let us explain a few things to you about the little economic order you've obviously missed. In fairness, the problem should be over any day because Fossils Minister Angus Tailings has pleaded with producers to pass on price reductions fairly. That should do the trick. And still, great resource companies in destruction, the There's Nothing Hypocritical Here Award of the Week to Rio Tinto the Planet following its difficult decision between blowing up 46,000 years of indigenous history or getting its claws on high-grade iron ore, which, when we think about it, was a no-brainer. There's no fortunes in not destroying a bit of history, but the hypocrisy? Well, thus far, the most compensation the Indigenous people have received is a very, very sincere apology, genuine virtual tears in real crocodile country, while calling on government not to overreact by passing regulations preventing it from doing it again when, then again, it would deliver another very, very sincere apology. Well, a couple of years ago, a company servicing a Rio Tinto the Planet mine in the same area ended up creating a fire causing production delays, for which Rio is seeking not a very, very sincere apology, but suing for half a million in damages, showing how much it hates damaging things like its bottom line. Rio Tinto the Planet, your There's Nothing Hypocritical Here award is on its way and do try not to damage it. Rio Tinto's plea for common sense, don't overreact, has been backed by, well, all the great resource companies submitting to a Western True Blue Aussie inquiry into the Aboriginal Heritage Act in the aftermath of the Ducan Cave's destruction. The government suggesting Indigenous mobs should have some rights of appeal they don't have now. Submissions led by no less a great True Blue Aussie than Gina Hart-Hart herself who warned the government not to interfere in existing deals or land use agreements. We're very happy, very, very, very happy with the land use agreements we've stitched up or or rather reached. And poor Gina's big fear expressed on behalf of all of them, giving indigenous mobs more rights could lead to, wait for this, sit down, it's outrageous, lead to the misuse of the process to delay important projects. They have no right to stop us doing what is best for the country. We can't be dictated to by self-interest. And oh, how the great resource companies and great troubler like Gina so eschew self-interest. 
what a pity those selfish indigenous mobs can't share the selfless patriotism of the great international resource giants. Mentioned some weeks ago, the furor over the appointment of Bo Pahari, real name, to run AMP on the customer's capital, not because the company settled a half-million-dollar sexual harassment claim against Bo, but as chairperson John Fraser pointed out so eloquently, he made a lot of money for the company, more presumably than the highly qualified woman he beat for the job who then resigned, or the harassment victim who also fled the company, but this week the details of her ordeal have been made public, and I won't go into the gory, horrific details, but anyway, what's it matter? He's made a lot of money for the company. Oh, and last week the troubler was he head of AMP on the customers resigned suddenly with further sexual harassment allegations floating around. I raise this because also this week, as a response to the proverbial hitting the fan, Bo himself announced he was establishing an Inclusion and Diversity Council just to show the company's sincerity. And who would he appoint to head Inclusion and Diversity? Why, of course, himself. After all, he's the sexual harassment expert. Uh, Inclusion and Diversity, Bo. Uh, Yes, yes, we want a diverse range of sexual harassers. And Bo's a perfect example of inclusion, like great inclusive leaders. And as Della Reese sang, what a difference a day makes, especially in Belarus. Not looking so Bella for big supremo Alexander Luka should go, but more rushing him out the door. Because just 24 hours after a massive 80% plus of voters re-elected him, showing how massively popular the old Alexander is, his opponent so unpopular she hardly made double figures, despite the anomaly that polling for the Belarusian diaspora in other countries showed her getting 85% of the vote, casting a huge doubt over that figure, 24 hours after the 80% plus showed how fickle a crowd can be, demanding poor old Alexander piss off. Hard to believe after they'd so overwhelmingly supported their ever-popular leader just a day earlier. They wanted to replace him with some opposition politicians, except for the minor problem, the entire opposition was in jail, convicted for the heinous crime of attempting to contest the election, along with lots of illegal terrorist protesters locked up for the good of the country and subjected to a little bit of torture for their failure to accept the democratic will of the people. The Final candidate standing after her husband was arrested, Svetlana Sikonoskova, fleeing across the border just before she too would have been headed for a prison cell, had a little bit of torture. Incredibly, some observers, like roughly 99% of the world, suggest the election might not have been absolutely, totally, 100% fair. But Alexander put his 80% plus popularity to the test by visiting a factory of loyal workers who farewelled him by chanting, leave now, leave now, and they're his biggest supporters. Can't crowds be fickle? How poor Alexander is suffering for democracy. Sadly, as we record this, and who knows what might happen by the time this goes to air, his response is to increase the oppression and violence against protesters, although... U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, has rung Alexander seeking a bit of electoral advice. 
Commercial Telenews the other night announced state public servants are to receive a 2% wage rise just as thousands of Victorians are losing their jobs. And I thought, I wonder which way this is going. To prove their point, the hard-hitting news team, well, using news very loosely, hard-hitting news team dredged up caring business class party and hayseed and sheepshit coalition supremo and would-be big state supremo Michael Nobrain to provide his deep analysis. This is the worst time for a pay rise which summed up the item perfectly and we can be sure Michael will inform us all when it is the best time, the right time for a pay rise. Isn't it disastrous timing by the evil unions that every single wage rise ever has always come at the wrong time? Now is the right time for a pay rise. Therefore, finally, it would help if only caring employers would tell us when it is the right time. Good afternoon. Great to have him back, Mr Kevin Healy. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning. Well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Activism for peace and justice, like other areas of life, comes in many shapes and sizes. Some people rally in the streets. Others write letters to politicians, attend fundraising activities, join support organisations, and the list goes on. But John Salisbury from suburban Melbourne goes for a walk. Not just any old walk, but for over 300k to highlight the injustices perpetrated against Palestinians by the Israeli state. And he's done this a number of times. And that's just the public side of his activism. Now there is a book about his journeys, Walking for Palestine, published by BookPod. I spoke with John late last week and asked him how far back in his life we need to go to find the seeds of concern of the injustices of this world. Sometimes I think it just comes in our DNA. I've looked back at my family 
I, you know, my family were very solid and I had a great upbringing. I just didn't get too much of that feeling for social injustice, certainly from my father anyway, but I got a little bit from my mother, I guess, because she was a uh, volunteer for a, a program. I come from New Zealand, Jen, and my mother was a volunteer for a number of years at a particular social program. So I guess I got some from her. When do you believe your first action or really getting into the injustices? It was How far back was that? I've been a member of Amnesty International for about 30 years and for many years I would go out on Candle Day and stand on a street corner selling uh, badges and candles and various things like that and that was a fundraising day for Amnesty International which they no longer do. But that was the first tangible sign that I was prepared to, you know, look, think about other people who were in a, um, a situation worse than myself and also think that you could do something to help those who were unjustly imprisoned. Amnesty is a very broad, it's very broad in its focus, you know, and I, I can remember writing letters to obscure African or South American countries pleading for a political prisoner. And so Amnesty has a very, a very wide focus in its attempts to shine a light on injustices. If they be particular, unique, personal injustices that someone has felt, and also larger uh, issues of injustice within a whole country whole systems. That was the beginning, but also my strong concern over issues that were very big in 30 years ago, so all earlier, the South African apartheid issue was one, concerned about South Africa. I didn't see very much about way of tangible activism. That was because I came from a fairly conservative family where that wasn't encouraged, but I had a very clear view which side of the issue I was on. That was an issue that was eventually resolved in the right fashion, which I was enormously pleased about. How many years ago did you cross the ditch? 46 years ago. You would have been well aware here of the issues of East Timor. That was the issue that exercised a lot of my mind after the South African issue was resolved. The apartheid wall came down. That was among the great joy and hope. And then we had the East Timorese issue, which was close to my heart because I'd actually been to East Timor when it was still a Portuguese colony way back in 1974. So I was very conscious of East Timor. I'd been there and then I followed events, the Balabo Five, the invasion by Indonesian forces and everything that 
happened subsequently. That went on, of course, until late 1990, early 2000. But once again, the victory of those wanting to have their independence and their freedom was resolved. What was the reason you went to East Timor in 1974 and what were the experiences of that for you? I was still a little bit uninformed, I would say, about what was the real issue in East Timor. I could tell it was a colony because there were Portuguese soldiers there. But the East Timorese themselves were they were just stirring to get independence and that was all tied up with what was going on in Portugal itself. But, you know, I didn't see a lot of... I didn't really delve into the issue as much as I could have or should have. When you look back on it, it was the last vestiges of a colonial system. The East Timorese, you know, they took a while, but they eventually... I mean, the Indonesians got rid of the Dutch quite a lot earlier. But anyway, the East Timorese eventually... What was a a very long and unjust colonization of their territory, and uh, only to find that they had the Indonesians who were running the show. So that was a a very horrible invasion and occupation by Indonesia, which shamefully Australia supported. So you know, it was another battle that had to be won. It was another injustice which eventually was put right. Were you part of that latest struggle for Timor? No. I had not done enough in my life to contribute to the struggle. I guess that's a way of putting it. I mean, I was a long-time member of Amnesty. Uh, I could see that... Just like South Africa, I, I, I quickly decided that I was on the side of those in search of their freedom. But I was busy running my business. I had a lot on my plate, so I just followed events, but I didn't get involved in the struggle in a personal way. Was there a, a certain time or an event that pushed you or set you in the path of Palestine? As I have written about in my book, initially, because of my age, Jan, I was probably an uncritical person of Israel. It's easy to be like that. In the early 1960s, there was a famous film called Exodus, which I remember going to see and I remember a few years later uh, reading the book that was very much a pro-Israel story it was a Hollywood version of events if I can put it like that you know I wasn't getting another perspective I was only getting the perspective of Leon Uris in those early years although I wasn't you know a very strong supporter of Israel I was probably, you know, completely uh, unaware of the other side of the story. How long was it before you got that other side of the story? There were 
a number of events. I should probably say, too, that when I was in my early 20s, I went to Europe, like a lot of us did at, at that time, wanting to um, have some overseas experience and adventure. A lot of people I came into contact with, and even one of my closest friends, went to Israel and lived on a kibbutz. It was something that you could do if you were young and you wanted to see the world. You could go and uh, stay on a kibbutz in Israel. It, we didn't really understand that by doing so, you were not paying sufficient attention to what had actually gone on in that space. As the years rolled by, there were a number of incidents regarding Israel that played out on the international stage, the Munich massacre. There was this story, uh, if you read the mainstream press, that it was this plucky little country that was fighting enemies on all sides. They managed to defeat those much stronger enemies at every turn. And that was really where a lot of us could just leave the issue, you know. But as time went on, I definitely changed my mind because of some incidents that it was pretty difficult to say Israel was the innocent victim. I'm talking about the massacres, Shabra and Shatila camps. Uh, they were Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. That's a story that did get some coverage in the press. That worried me. There were stories about the 67 war and the 73 war and then the, the Palestinian attempts to fight back. They were given a lot of coverage in the press and we had the peace process with endless shuttles between Washington and Jerusalem and every country around, you know, Jordan and Egypt, etc. For many, many, many years, there was this sort of thing. Could there be a resolution of the Middle East conflict, which was basically Palestine and Israel? And the, the more I looked into it, the more I could see that it wasn't as clear-cut as I had thought. I read a book in, I think it was about 2006, which really changed my mind, and that was a book by a young Australian Jewish writer, Anthony Lowenstein. That really disturbed me because it wasn't just, you know, the, the history of Israel basically since the Holocaust and on into 48. He went through all that and set the record straight. It was also the problem of solving the issue, which was something that Australia at a high government level was incapable of seeing the injustice because of a strong amount of pressure from a well-funded Israel lobby within Australia. How long was it before you got to know Palestinians here in Melbourne and heard the stories of their families? A long time later. I read a number of other books 
on this issue, uh, I read a book by uh, another Jewish writer, Polakow Sarensky. It was called The Secret Alliance, Sasha Polakow Sarensky. It was a, a book about the secret alliance between South Africa and Israel during the apartheid era. That was a very disturbing book because it showed how closely Israel was aligned with the white supremacist government in Pretoria. A pretty shameful read if you if you if you do pick up that it makes you angry and it it makes you see clearly that Israel didn't go about its international relations with any principles or morals. It was uh, whatever it takes, a book that had an influence on me. And then there is a book by Paul McGough, who's an Australian journalist, that was um, about the assassination attempt on the life of uh, a Palestinian leader in Jordan, Khaled Michel. Paul McGough's book is also fascinating because it related the story of how Israel tried to take out this Palestinian leader in, on the streets of Amman. I was becoming really concerned that this was a major international event which was starting to influence not just Israel and Palestine, but the determination by the Israel government and the Israeli lobbies in Washington and in Canberra too, that countries close by to to Israel and Palestine, for example, Iraq, that was perceived by Israel to be a threat to Israel's military hegemony in the region. So they actively lobbied the Americans and the Australians to go in militarily to Iraq and take out Saddam Hussein, even though you can argue that there was there were other reasons for that military escapade in 2003. It was definitely supported by Israel. They were up to their, their ears in it in terms of going to Washington and Bibi Netanyahu said to at a Senate committee that if if America would go in and take out Saddam Hussein, that would have uh, enormous reverberations around the Arab world. So I was pretty depressed about it, I guess, that other international conflicts, other international problems would eventually calm down. You know, there was Ireland and there was Rwanda. I mean, but there were things that were happening around the world which were awful, but they eventually seemed to, you know, get ameliorated one way or another. Never Palestine. You're listening to 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with activist John Salisbury about his long commitment to peace with justice in Palestine. Did all this knowledge spur you on to look for Palestinian organisations or Palestinian advocacy organisations? In 2014, I'd, we'd been, my wife and I, as I said, we'd been in business for 
a very long time and we eventually sold the business. We were self-funded retirees, so I had time on my hands. 2014, just a year or two after we'd finished our business, the third Solcon Gardrop, that's the way I think of it, was underway. I think it was Operation Cast Lead. It was a real um, unequal fight because the people in Gaza had no tanks, no planes, minimal military equipment facing this superpower, military superpower. They were already uh, under siege and then this horrible situation took place in 2014. So I took myself off to a protest at the State Library and I went to a couple of protests and I did meet some uh, Palestinians. Uh, that was probably the first time that I had caught up with Palestinians and if some of them have become uh, good friends now as I have gone about you know, actively promoting the Palestinian cause. How did a rally outside the State Library lead to you undertaking your first walk? I know it was only the two-day one, it, but... Along with um, other Palestinians who were speaking, I can remember particularly a Palestinian woman who spoke on the day. She made a big impression on me on the day. But along with uh, the Palestinians that I was uh, listening to and I uh, was becoming more and more clear for, you know, what an awful situation the Palestinians were in, especially in Gaza during that six-week operation. Anthony Lanstein, who whose book I read, he was often up to make make comments and he put the side of the Palestinians on display, spoke very well. Also was firming up my, you know, outright opposition to the whole situation of where the Palestinians found themselves getting angry that the Israel lobby would demand that they were the victims. If any Palestinians died, it wasn't their fault. It was the fault of the Palestinian leadership, which was uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, or it was Fatah in the West Bank. That was making me pretty angry. And later that year, you know, I was following Anthony Lowenstein on Facebook. We were friends. One day he said that this gentleman... Dr. Marcelo Sversky was doing a walk from Sydney to Canberra to protest Israel's actions and calling for sanctions against Israel for the massacre. He was doing a walk. If anyone wanted to accompany him on the walk, you know, he really appreciated and enjoyed some company. Couldn't see any reason why I couldn't join him. I was very upset at the horrendous uh, injustice. So I met up with him and did uh, the last two days of his walk from Sydney to Canberra. That was in 2014. And I should say Dr. Sversky is, is an Israeli gentleman. <laughs> if he was angry, then that seemed to 
considering that you know my anger. What preparations did you have for a two-day walk? I didn't have any. I thought I could. It wouldn't be any any issue for me because I've always been a jogger. I'm quite fit. It won't be any problem for me. But actually, after those two days walking with Marcelo, I was wrecked. His feet were in terrible shape. He must have gone through a lot of pain because when I met up with him the first morning, we set off on the walk. He spent about half an hour tending to his feet. His feet looked awful, blisters everywhere. I didn't get too many blisters on that first, that first couple of days, but my legs were aching and took its toll on me, put it that way. Not enough to put you off for doing a long walk all by yourself the next year. Exactly. <laughs> I thought that there's one thing you could do to try to keep the issue, uh, give a different perspective on the issue and keep the issue alive. It's pretty lonely if you're Palestinian. Not so much the general population, but at the top level in, in Australian politics. I would write a letter to, I wrote several letters to Julia Gillard, and I would write them uh, online. There's a portal where you can contact your Prime Minister. If you do that, receive a little note at the end of your online query or question or your submission has been received and you will be replied to. I raised my concerns with her, but I didn't get a reply. I did it again and I still didn't get a reply, even though they received what I had written. I didn't get anything from Julia Gillard, no matter how I tried. Later, Julia Gillard received the, the Jerusalem Prize because she was such a strong supporter of Israel. What I was seeing, Jan, was grotesque injustice. Julia Gillard, all she saw was, I'm going to support Israel, no matter what, the worst Prime Minister ever. And then some issues, she was very good. But on that issue, she would not even countenance a Palestinian perspective. Terribly upset, even Dan Andrews, when I was down at the State Library, really upset for all those kids who were killed in the, the bombing raids by Israel forces into Shadraya and other parts of the, of the Gaza Strip. Dan Andrews, our current Premier, he was at a Pro-Israel rally. And I just could not believe that our political leaders, even, you know, people who uh, on many issues, you could rely upon them to, that the victims had to, or people who were in a bad situation needed to be given consideration. After your walk for 2014 and your 2015, Another one in 2016. Yes. Did you get any yes. joy at all from politicians and people along the way? What were people along the way yes. telling you? That's exactly right, Jim. I've got a pretty good feel situation on the ground because as part of my 2015 and 2016 activities, I 
I got petitions going for the Australian government to recognise the state of Palestine. In collecting signatures, I had stalls set up on the street and people, as people were going by, I asked them if they would sign the petition. Then on these two walks, which I did, I found a lot of people who, when I spoke to them about the issue, they could see that an injustice had been done and they didn't agree with the way that Israel behaved in its treatment of the Palestinians. I got a lot of support from, you know, the average Australian, I guess you could say. That was reassuring, I guess, but at the end of the day, Jan, it didn't really make any difference because at the top level of Australian politics, all our leaders, all our prime ministers were pro-Israeli. And that's all that mattered. You know, I could see, after reading what Anthony Lowenstein had said in his book about the way the Israeli lobby swung into gear to try to overturn the decision of the Sydney Peace Foundation to award its prize to Hanan Mishrawi, I could see that similar forces worked at the top level of Australian politics to make sure that Whoever was the Prime Minister, they were going to speak out in favour of Israel strongly. Found that, because as I said, I didn't get any response from Julia Gillard. And then I found that the people who, at the politi- in the political class, the people who did have enough decency and enough heart and courage to speak out against Israel, and there were some, they were marginalised. The basic situation was that if you just kept quiet or you supported Israel, then things went along quite well for you in politics and in life generally, because when you finish your political career, if you'd been uh, someone who'd spoken out against Israel, then doors tended to get closed to you. This went back to tremendous brouhaha about awarding the Sydney Peace Prize to Hanan Ashrawi and the closing of doors to people because of their refusal to overturn the decision they made to award her the prize. And the same thing happened to politicians who are brave enough to speak out against Israel one of them was a woman called Melissa Park. She was the member, Labour member for Fremantle. She was a UN lawyer and she'd been sent to Gaza, lived there a couple of years, knew the situation, went into politics, then found her career stymied and eventually ruined because she did speak out against Israel's actions. She paid the price. There were others, too, who were marginalised, but they, they did exist. They were there. I had quite a bit of support, believe it or not, for my efforts. When I got to Canberra, I was met by a number of Australian politicians. That All those details are in the book. I would imagine, John, that the most successful walk was the one in late 2018 when you went to... Adelaide, and you attended yes. the ALP Triennial National Conference there. 
that was the last walk so far. <laughs> and by this stage, I guess I'd started to uh, appear on people's radar screens. You know, who is this crazy guy <laughs> wearing out to his feet for Palestine? And it is a crazy thing to do, Jen, but, you know, the forces on the other side were so dominant, so effective at that uh, political level that it really needed some sort of counteraction, you know. And so I think I did my bit. And the walk to Adelaide was just a small contribution to what had become quite a big movement by that time to actually take the issue of Palestinian suffering seriously within the Labour Party. It was really led by Bob Carr. He pushed for the Australian Labour Party to do the right thing and to wake up to itself. And then Bob Hawke, um, who was, of course, quite an old man by then, but he had also lent his support to the Labour Party recognising Palestine. Kevin Rudd was on board as well. Gareth Evans, there was this quite large push within the Labour Party and the union movement for something positive to be done to um, redress this awful situation where the, the occupation and the, the, set, the increasing number of settlements, the siege um, of guards, all these things became so overwhelming that I think the Labour Party could not resist, even at the top level, because Bill Shorten was a pretty strong Israeli supporter. The current deputy leader of the Labour Party, he was also a strong supporter of Israel. And then there was Mark Dreyfus, a very strong supporter of Israel. But I think the numbers had become sort of so overwhelming, we really got somewhere in the 2018 Labour Party conference because they made it part of their policy platform that in their first term they would recognise Palestine formally. Motion was put by Penny Wong, Labour's most significant political figure, in my view, seconded by Tony Burke. We had some hope that if Labour had have won the 2019 election, then the issue of Palestine would have come up Perhaps the Australian government, the Labour Party, Australian government would follow Sweden and formally recognise the state of Palestine. But all our hopes were dashed. Scott Morrison won, and Scott Morrison and Tony Abbott, you know, they were all very strong supporters of Israel, and they wouldn't count any recognition of Palestine. Now we have a book. Walking for Palestine. It's been described as, as documenting effort and reflection. What yeah. has been that effort, physically, mentally, psychological, of 300 plus K walks over those years? You know, I don't want to overstate it because, you know, I had the time, I had the capacity to do it. My wife and I, top hundred retirees, so you know we had a bit of time on our hands. We thought we could do something useful. Psychologically, it's pretty easy, really, to use you on the right side. 
and if you think that your the moral cause is a correct one, then you just go for it. The motivation is uh, the possibility of literally saving someone's life in their suffering. Anything that I did to help that cause, the possibility of ending it, it sounds a little bit, not far-fetched, but a little bit problematic to try and think that walking you know, in around Australia could somehow influence events in Palestine, but what it needs is for the rest of the world to be honest about the situation and to sanction Israel for their occupation and for not following United Nations resolutions. That's what it takes. If Australia had uh, elected a Labour government and they had said, well, we're not um, going to pussyfoot around with Israel anymore, we're going to say strongly that we support Palestinian aspirations for a state of their own and we're going to formally recognise it. If they had have done that, there would have been enormous problems because Israel would have pushed back hard prior to Penny Wong or Bill Shorten formally making that ruling that they were going to recognise Palestine. But anyway, it hasn't eventuated, but we can solve this issue. Palestinians can't solve it for themselves because they don't have any military capacity, financial capacity, and that's pretty much what it was like for our people in South Africa. The Mandela forces eventually overcame oppression and inequality, and a lot of the way that issue was resolved was because of international pressure being brought against the apartheid regime. We, the outside world, needs to help the Palestinians. What I did was just trying to get to our political class and put their consciences, if you like, and say, can't just let this go on. You know, we've got to do something. John, what did you learn about yourself along the way in those walks and those you met along the journey? I did a lot of training before I set off. So physically I could cope with it. I got blisters and things, but I, I was prepared for the physical side of things. I was really heartened by the level of support that came in on social media from all over the world. Palestinians, lots and lots of them, hundreds of them were deeply appreciative of me not letting the situation just roll on that I had tried in my own tiny little way to highlight awful predicament that they were in. A lot of people who have done a lot to uh, try and help the Palestinians. I've got sort of a hero's list of activists in my book. I would give them a a little bit of a um, plug. Whatever day I was walking, I'd say today is in honour of, you know, it could have been Jimmy Carter, it was Desmond Tutu, it was Roger Waters, and I was just another one. I had some loneliness. I wondered whether it was worthwhile sometimes because I knew at the top level of Australian politics that I was going to get ignored. And of course, Julie Bishop, she got the petitions from me but had no time for me. Only gave me the time of day because the petition had to be formally responded to. So 
I didn't really learn that much about myself, I suppose. I, suppose I just concentrated on doing what I could to uh, help the Palestinians and um, save them from suffering. What do you believe is the strongest part of this book? I guess it's what Penny Wong, strangely enough, said when marriage equality finally came to Australia. She cried some tears because you know she was personally involved and she wrote a little article about the fact that people whose who sexual orientation was, was different from mine could finally um, hold their heads up and have the same treatment that people who married members of the opposite sex had. She, so she said that people all over the world, since the beginning of time really, they have always wanted equal treatment. It's a defining principle. A principle that springs from the simple and powerful precept of the inherent dignity of every human being. And so it has been throughout history. What I said to that was, we just want that for the Palestinian people. That is what I think the book tries to draw attention to. Equal treatment for Palestinians. I've been speaking with activist and walker for Palestine, John Salisbury, about his life and commitment to peace with justice in Palestine. His book is Walking for Palestine. There's a lot more in that book than what we've been talking about today. You can buy it through APAN or Books Depository or BookPod, who is the publisher. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Eamon McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr Randa Abdel-Fatah and Nisiba Fala. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS Australia is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a 3CR supporter. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays. I'm Kevin Bracken, and I'd just like to say a few words for my good friend Paddy Garrity. 
I first met Paddy during the Patrick's Dispute in 1998 when he was organising a flotilla of small boats to sail from Williamstown to Webdock during the height of the Patrick's Dispute. Over the years, I came to know Paddy and be involved with him more and more and we developed a warm friendship. I'd see Paddy at Trades Hall when we ran the bar. It was a good fit as Paddy had been a passionate union member since his early days in the Senior Junior of Australia and it gave him an opportunity to take part in artistic productions as he believed in developing working class culture. Paddy had earlier worked at Williamstown Naval Dockyard and was involved in many artistic productions and later became a rigger or the main rigger for Circus Oz. Paddy was very active in the peace movement and he told me some of his earliest childhood memories were a playmate's killed during the German bombing of England during World War II. He played a large part in the massive demonstration in Melbourne on the 14th of February 2003 against the Iraq war. But that was only one of many actions that spanned his whole life. Paddy was, was a very active member of the MUA Retired Veterans Association until his health began to fail. He believed in the importance of our labour history. We were both members of the Whittaker Committee where we did great research and wrote about the shootings. And it was great to have him draw the curtain on the plaque for the Whittaker Centre two years ago. Everyone who knew Paddy would recall a, a t- twinkle in his eye and who could forget the demonstration outside the night store with Paddy first only in his work boots. And while he was always up for a bit of fun, he found time to give support and solidarity to working people, indigenous people, refugees and anyone in struggle. We've lost a compassionate champion of the working class who fought oppression and struggled his whole life to make this a better world. I give my condolences to Mary and recall that he felt very lucky to share his life with you. Valet, Paddy Gary. Thanks to fellow trade unionist Kevin Bracken. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. This morning I spoke with Bob Phelps, the director of the Gene Ethics Network, for our monthly look at all things genetic and much more. And I began by focusing on the countries around the world who have banned or are in the process of banning glyphosate over health and environmental concerns and pointed out that Australia, like in many other areas, is behind the eight ball. That's right. Yes, our Pest and Veterinary Medicines Authority is siding with the Monsanto and Bayer companies over a herbicide roundup saying that uh, provided you use it according to the label... There's nothing to worry about. But meanwhile, 
20 other countries have either banned the use of the chemical or um, are in the process of doing so. So they're um, reviewing their herbicide use and their weed management. Togo, a country in West Africa, is the latest to join uh, the others. Throughout Asia, the Middle East, in Central America, and also several countries in Europe are in the process of banning it as a result of the World Health Organization determining that um, the main chemical in Roundup is uh, carcinogen, which causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Has there been any follow-up from the WHO on that, or is that just something they said a couple of years ago and that's it? Oh, no. Uh, there's been a huge battle, in fact. The company has been um, arguing the point about it because, of course, uh, a number of Americans have taken the company to court over its behaviour. There are over 100,000 cases in the pipeline in the USA from people who have gotten on Hodgkin's lymphoma and were repeatedly exposed to the toxin as a result of regularly using um, glyphosate-based herbicides. Indeed, as far as Australia is concerned, there is something going on, and that is that uh, a lot of local government councils are now reconsidering their position, and uh, we've been promoting that uh, since 2015. Starting to get some traction, the latest, in fact, was one of our stars, Michelle Kwok, in um, Jundalup in Western Australia presented her petition a couple of weeks ago. She had 1,499 signatures on her petition. She'd been out with dog walkers, particularly in the morning, and with the parents at the schools, and she said that's where she got the best response. As a result, Jundalup is now spraying all sensitive public areas, um, like parks around childcare, on sidewalks with, uh, they're using weed steamer instead of chemicals, and that's really a very good development. The other place locally that's made the change and now has bought two weed steamers is the city of Maribyrnong, following up on Yarra's earlier decision to uh, treat its sensitive areas without the use of glyphosate-based herbicides as well. So Roundup is on the back foot. Monsanto and Bayer are on the back foot, of course, because of the number of cases that are being taken against them in the USA as well. And some of those cases have now been settled in favour of the people complaining uh, and, of course, dying as well of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But has the WHO made any recent comments on this? Uh, not specifically, no. I think the, the judgment or, or the um, decision of the International Expert Committee uh, on this, which was taken in 2015, has really been the main driver. The people who are involved in that, including a professor from Western Australia, have defended their decision. And certainly the insurance industry, as I mentioned, a local government and a number of governments around the world are taking that warning seriously. Monsanto, and which is now owned by Bayer Crop Science, are on the defensive. They're still running the line uh, that um, Roundup is safe to use, provided you follow the instructions. They're sticking to it, you know, even though we know that the evidence of harm, not only the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but other uh, illnesses, is mounting quite considerably. 
Has there been any research on its effect on animals? Of course, laboratory animals have been one of the main sources of the evidence that was brought forward by the expert committee of the World Health Organization. When they made their decision, most of the evidence, and it was hundreds of peer-reviewed studies that they looked at, were as a result of examining animals that had been systematically exposed to glyphosate and found that uh, a number of systemic disorders and cancers were uh, induced as a result of that exposure. And that evidence must be pretty strong because there have now been three major court cases in the USA as a result of the findings of the World Health Organization. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the first of those was finally resolved when the Monsanto appeals process was finally rejected. So it's taken uh, about three years for that to go through various courts. In the end, Dwayne Johnson uh, versus Monsanto Company was uh, successfully litigated and uh, Dwayne was originally awarded $289 million by a jury. That has been reduced down to $10,250,000 for, for his illness, which is fatal, of course, um, and another $10,250,000 in punitive damages as a result of the findings that the company lied, cheated, hid evidence, and did a number of other really terrible things in order uh, to try to avoid their liability. Uh, he was all, also awarded over $500,000 in legal costs as a result of the case. And there have been two other major cases that have both been resolved in the favour of the uh, people suffering harm as well. Uh, in the Pilio case, for example, uh, the jury found that um, Monsanto... Monsanto's Roundup was uh, defective, that uh, Monsanto had failed to warn the users of the product of the cancer risks on the label or in any other way, and of course that wasn't required by the regulators, same here in Australia. They found the company had acted negligently, so um, the award in that case was $55 million in compensation and it was a husband and wife. They awarded them $1 billion each in punitive damages. Pretty unbelievable, and it certainly will go on um, on appeal. And maybe in the end, I guess they'll get something similar each uh, to Dwayne Johnson's payout. But the significant thing about that is that um, some of the lawyers who are handling about 95,000 of the cases in the USA tried to do a deal with the company which would have only seen the people who are harmed, the people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, being paid somewhere between $5,000 and $250,000 each. Really a piddling amount considering that the disease is fatal and considering the awards that have been granted by juries in the courts. So in fact the judge who was in reviewing that case has said... Um, that there's no basis for such a settlement, then the court is not going to accept it and they've sent the negotiators back to have a, another go at getting a more equitable and fair amount uh, allocated to the, um, to the people who have been harmed 
by the uh, glyphosate and by the Roundup herbicide product. If you've got judges awarding these huge amounts in some of these cases, the punitive damage, isn't it time that the directors and the people that are running these companies are actually taken to court individually and either fined or jailed for what they're doing? Are we wait for that time? <laughs> you could be a long time waiting, Jan, unfortunately. In fact, of course, Monsanto was sold for $66 billion to Bayer, uh, to Bayer Crop Science. So, in fact, what's happened there is the Monsanto executives knew perfectly well what was coming down the track at them. They knew they had lied and cheated and that they were going to be called to account. And so they bailed out selling the company it would be very good if we could backtrack and have some of those people before the court themselves for what they did. But I really don't think it's too likely. You know, companies are lying and cheating all the time. And in fact, there is a case at the moment where Bayer um, had sold shonky contraceptives to American women, and there are now some 30,000 women. Their health has just been absolutely ruined trying to make claims against Bayer the pharmaceutical part of Bayer, Bayer as well. We'll just have to see how that travels. But the, these companies, Bayer and Monsanto, which have been going for at least a century, have got this vast history of misbehaviour and nobody has been brought to account yet. It's really pathetic and a great shame that this fiction that companies can be treated like individuals and it doesn't matter who the executives are or what games they get up to really can get off scot-free. A company being treated like an individual is held liable but uh, nobody goes to jail. What's happening with the company that's connected to China? Well, ChemChina, which is associated with the Chinese government, of course, did buy Syngenta, the a Swiss agrochemical company, a couple of years ago, and so it's heavily engaged in producing a lot of uh, generic agricultural chemicals and industrial chemicals as well. But so far, it hasn't been found out or held to account, so there's no litigation or anything going on. However, because China is such a powerhouse of production, uh, we can see that uh, in many cases they're going to dominate the market in things like Roundup and other agricultural chemicals into the future because they've got the production capacity there to do it. You know, our local nasty company here, of course, is New Farm and New Seed, based here in Melbourne. But uh, there are just a handful of companies now involved in this, owning most of the agrochemicals and seed production in the world. Bayer which took over Monsanto, ChemChina, which got Syngenta. And then there's a new company called Corteva, which is um, Dow and DuPont getting together. And they're um, pretty big in the scene as well. And then the other major one is the German company BASF. When Bayer bought Monsanto, it had to offload a number of its assets because it was accused by governments of being a monopoly in many markets. So it sold those to its uh, fellow German company, BASF, its close relative. And um, as a result, they've become the new powerhouse for seed and chemicals as well. There are only about four or five major companies involved. Their major 
representative around the world, of course, is CropLife, which operates in 92 countries. And so here in Australia, 16 chemical and seed entities that uh, CropLife represents are responsible for 100% of the genetically manipulated seed that's sold to Australian farmers and 85% of the agricultural chemicals that are in the marketplace here as well. That's the corporate mouthpiece, CropLife. CropLife Australia is just one of um, those companies, uh, all associated with each other, operating around the world at the moment in 92 countries with headquarters based in Washington, D.C. and the USA. The domination of conventional uh, agriculture and agribusiness worldwide is really um, a very monopolised situation, uh, very profitable, of course, for the companies, and they are trying desperately to uh, deny the dangerousness, the terrible havoc that is wreaked on human health, animal health and the environment by a lot of the chemicals that they sell. And unfortunately, the regulators, uh, particularly USA, Canada, and in South America, where a lot of these things are used on broadacre agriculture, are really in the pockets of those corporations as well. So we've here in Australia with our regulators, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, uh, to clean up their act. And in fact, we'll ma be making a submission by this Friday uh, just on that topic. Uh, it's being reviewed again, but the government, of course, is hell-bent on so-called slashing green and red tape and deregulating the agrochemicals market uh, even further than now. Moving on to a peer-reviewed study in environmental research, or should we call it a P-reviewed study in environmental research? Oh, yes, yes, that's right. There's been some research uh, going on in, in the USA. A non-government organisation there um, got some scientists to uh, look at a before and after where um, people who are eating a conventional diet uh, of everyday American food were moved on to exclusively organic. So they had a control group who were eating the normal stuff, as most Americans do, and then they got some of those people to eat organic. And for six days, they were testing their urine for the presence of the Roundup herbicide residues, and they found that in the space of just a few days of eating organic, which is, of course free of the herbicide residues, they found that um, they had an average 70% drop in those residues in their urine. A startling re result, really, in such a short time. It is important, really, because um, now the food supply around the world is contaminated. Uh, Roundup is the most used agricultural chemical in the world. Uh, it's a broad-spectrum herbicide that can be used to kill any green plant except those that tolerate it, like the genetically manipulated soy, corn, canola and cotton, where you can spray the crop and kill the weeds. But in any event, it uh, is also, of course, getting into food systems. And the most recent report there is that um, New Zealand's manuka honey which, of course, is absolutely renowned worldwide and is sold for up to $200 a jar, has been found to contain 
some residues of Roundup as well. Of course, the countries that are um, importing New Zealand's Manuka honey in some cases now have zero tolerance for any Roundup at all, particularly those that we mentioned earlier that have now banned its use entirely. And as a result, question marks are being put over the, um, the acceptability of that honey to the shoppers in those countries. Uh, this is pretty serious business. As I mentioned, they're selling that product at a huge premium, up to $200 a jar, although that's exceptional uh, because of its health-giving qualities. We want to be eating such an expensive and so supposedly health-giving product if it, if, if it also contained the residues of Roundup herbicide. So there's good news there. We now know that an organic diet, you do pay a bit more for your food, but um, you get the benefits of not having to eat the residues of the stuff that's routinely sprayed over our food crops, both here in Australia and around the world. Now there's evidence that uh, bees and other um, organisms in the environment are affected as well since the bees in New Zealand are um, collecting pollen and accumulating uh, those toxins into their um, manuka honey supply. Well, watch the space. We'll see how that plays out. And also in the, the US you're talking about there, mouse bites man will destroy of men and mice, isn't it? Yes, it is. And of course, um, we mentioned earlier that uh, laboratory animals are the main source of evidence about... Uh, what can go seriously wrong with chemical residues and, of course, with microorganisms like the virus, the COVID virus, which is currently causing the human pandemic. So a mouse um, being used in a high-security lab in the USA for research purposes that had been infected with the coronavirus to check it out recently bit a researcher there. This is not a Hollywood plot, this is um, dangerous infection agents being kept in high security laboratories around the world and it raises a number of very, very important issues that I think. Uh, of course, after coronavirus hit the news earlier in the year, we had our own government and also the Trump in the USA going berserk and calling for the high security laboratories in Wuhan and China where the pandemic appears to have begun, calling for a review of those laboratories. But we are very quick to remind our own government and the US government that, in fact, we have level four laboratories as well. These are around the world doing biowarfare research, doing research into some of the most dangerous infections agents in the world, as the um, website of the laboratory in Geelong says re, they're doing research, they say, into the most dangerous infectious agents in the world. And if you look on the site, you can see that they're in space suits and uh, taking the containment very seriously. But what we know about what was formerly the Australian Animal Health Laboratories, which has been renamed just this year as the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness down here in Geelong, it's had a couple of snafus over the years that have um, harmed people as well and might have led to the release into the environment or into the public health of those infectious agents. 
So we need to take that seriously. And our call is for all of those laboratories, the hundreds of laboratories globally that are engaged in this high security and high risk research to be all reviewed. We shouldn't just be targeting the, the Chinese laboratories because uh, some of the research that's going on in there, uh, so-called gain-of-function experiments, actually increases the pathogenicity of the microorganisms, makes them more dangerous than they were naturally to find out what they will do and what they're capable of. And there have been big question marks from the scientific community itself over this gain-of-function research for at least a decade, and yet nothing has been done at all. So I think it's time for a very, very thorough review of all the level four laboratories around the world, including the ones doing biological warfare agent research. We saw, for instance, that Fort Detrick, which is the main biowarfare facility in the USA, was in fact shut down for some time last year as a result of being not compliant and not secure. Review of what's going on with uh, the COVID pandemic globally, I think that a really serious look at the source of the organism and particularly at the laboratories that might have contained it is really a number one priority as far as we're concerned. You can either answer it, this or not answer it. Do you have an opinion, Bob, on using millions or possibly billions of animals in research in these places? I do. I'm, I think it's vivisection is, is not a great thing. But I'm, I also, I'm, <laughs> I'm stepping from one foot to the other on this because I'm uh, also a member of a committee at one of Melbourne's universities, which is the Animal Ethics Committee. So I'm actually involved personally in trying to ensure that at least the mice and rats and sometimes even rabbits that are contained in those laboratories are treated humanely, ethically, even though ultimately um, they're all euthanized at the end. We can't reasonably experiment with new treatments and so on on human beings. So the options for this kind of research are rather limited. It's a hard ethical question about whether or not it should be done at all. But in a situation like we're at the moment with the pandemic globally, it's pretty important to find out uh, the source of the uh, virus, to find out how it can be treated, maybe even how something can be developed which might um, actually prevent it. Yes, we need a, 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 a further discussion about animal welfare and the treatment of animals in research, and we're engaged with people like Animals Australia about that, and I know that um, they're very conscious and aware of it as well. The best we can do at the moment is that there is a very tough set of guidelines and laws in relation to uh, the welfare and humane treatment of uh, laboratory animals in Victoria in particular. And I must say that the state government is very, very rigorous indeed in enforcing those laws. Every institution that uses uh, laboratory animals has to have an animal ethics committee. We meet six times a year and uh, we take our responsibilities very seriously. Um, <laughs> I'm in two minds about your question, but um, it's not simple to, to answer. 
and I'm certainly willing to engage in a, a discussion with those who think that it shouldn't occur. Could you give one example of um, what you might be discussing at those bi-monthly meetings? Well, about firstly, reducing to the absolute minimum the number of animals involved. So sometimes you'll get a researcher who wants to um, use more animals than are necessary to get a result. For example, in the COVID research that's just started to go on, and a lot of institutions in Victoria and worldwide, you know, to get a result, you need a control group and you need an experimental group and you may need a number of different treatments for the experimental group to try to find out what, what really is going on. And the work of the Animal Ethics Committee is to reduce to the minimum the number of animals that are going to be ultimately sacrificed in the course of that research to make sure that they're humanely and fairly treated, that there's no unnecessary suffering. So if an animal comes ill as a result of the treatment and so on, that is reviewed as well. To their credit, the state government has got a pretty rigorous regime in place. They do monitor and check very, very rigorously. Reporting requirements from all the institutions are pretty... Um, demanding and if you don't comply you really get this pretty serious rap over the knuckles and the work can be shut down in the worst case you know it's 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 a discussion that needs to be had about at, at core it's is it legitimate for human beings to exploit animals so that we can protect ourselves that's really the bottom line of it and uh, at the moment the research community and governments are doing their best. And I think that the people on those committees are well-intentioned. Very many veterinarians are involved. Um, there are certain categories of membership of the committees. Um, I'm a member representing the public, but there are also people from the research community, from the veterinarians community, and from lab security as well who are involved in those committees. And certainly having people there, I think, who are representing the public interest as we see it and requiring the researchers to explain in plain English so that we can understand it exactly what they're doing and having to justify in great detail why they are using those animals in the way that they are, that there is some defence at least against um, the inhumane treatment of uh, particularly mice, rats, and occasionally rabbits um, in the laboratories that we supervise at least. And I must say that I'm not speaking on behalf of the institution uh, where I'm on the Animal Ethics Committee. I'm just expressing a personal opinion about these matters. Thank you for doing that. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. 
I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the, the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio at 5 a.m. on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Friday the 11th of September is National Walk Safely to School Day. During COVID-19, we need to support children who are learning from home. No matter where they are, children need to be physically fit to be mentally fit. It's a great reminder to all children and adults that walking regularly is the best exercise. So put your feet first and walk plenty in 2020. And remember, active kids are smarter kids. Find us on walk.com.au, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Walk Safely to School Day is a 3CR supporter. This is Natalie from Blue King Brown, and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. It was probably just a matter of time before Kafia face masks were a reality. They're now available in two designs, Fishnet and Olive Leaf. They're made by Women's Cooperative in Balata, refugee camp in Nablus, and brought to us by Palestine Fair Trade Australia. And today we hear about the masks and much more as I'm speaking with Barbara Block from PFTA. Barbara, can we have the background to this endeavour to support Palestine? So Palestine Fair Trade Australia was set up in, well, five years ago, actually, 2015. If it wasn't for the COVID situation, we'd probably have a big celebration, but we won't now. Anyway, it was set up in 2015 by a group of us who have been Palestinian um, supporters for a long time, and we were actually in another group called, a New South Wales group called Coalition for Justice and Peace in Palestine. And one of the members of that group knew of a similar organisation in England, well, Great Britain, I guess, but also imported fair trade and organic goods from Palestine. And so we kind of set it up on that model, except that the organisation in um, Britain had a lot of funding behind it, which we don't have. That means that for the last five years, for those of us working, we're all volunteers, basically. Well, when I got involved, I have to say I didn't imagine that it was going to be such a time-consuming endeavour, but it is. It's certainly worthwhile. And so why did we do it? There's a number of aspects to it, two general and one specific. So all the um, food that we import is organic. I think it's a really good and important thing to support the organic food industry, wherever it is around the world. And sort of coupled with that, the food and other um, products that we import are fair trade. And fair trade also is a global movement. 
and fair trade's about getting better prices, decent working conditions, and fair trade for farmers and workers and the global movement, as I just said. So everything that we import from Palestine is fair trade, mostly all certified, but for the smaller organisations not, but we do make some inquiries to make sure that people who are producing the goods that we're selling are getting a reasonable wage. So that's the two general reasons. And then the specific reason, of course, is to do with Palestine itself. As I imagine your listeners will know, Palestine is you know, in sort of an ongoingly sort of terrible state in terms of it being occupied. And, you know, the occupation isn't, it's, it's primarily a military occupation, it's a political occupation, it's also an, an economic and cultural occupation. So there are a lot of logistical challenges to getting the goods out of Palestine because they all have to go through Israel and Israel wax on great big tariffs as much as it possibly can. But the economic and the cultural kind of go together because there are different groups, people in Palestine, who want to preserve their heritage, particularly um, agricultural heritage in terms of sustainable farming practices, not using herbicides, not using you know, big agriculture. So that's where the sort of the organic farming comes in. But it's it's more than just about not using herbicides, etc. It's also about seeing, like for instance, especially to do with the um, you know olive oils that we produce or that we import rather, that the olive tree is such a symbol for Palestinian people that goes back you know generations and generations. Actually, one of the organisations that companies that we produce, that we import from called Canaan Fair Trade and they've been in operation about 15 years or so very successfully. They mostly export their olive oils and other goods because to be honest they're quite expensive and so there's not that many Palestinians who could afford to buy them in Palestine. So we import their oil, beautiful products and the founder and CEO of that organisation has said that Producing the oils and the other goods is, for him anyway, it's, it's finding a way of having Palestinians belong to the world, <laughs> to the world community and the world economy. And so it's also a way for them of, of living in a sort of harmonious way with nature. That's the specific kind of reason in terms of why Palestine. But the other reason that we are importing these products, which I'll talk about the products more a bit later, but the other reason we import them is that it's a way of talking about Palestine to Australians without getting into the sort of heavy politics immediately and, and people you know, getting offside or whatever. Is it through the food and the other products that we sell, like soaps and embroidery and such, we can just you know have a conversation about where they've come from and why and it can lead on to interesting conversations with people who don't necessarily know a lot about Palestine or even the fact that is occupied. Just stay with the Canine Fair Trade for a few minutes. Who are those who benefit from it? Can you describe the area where these products come from? Well, as I said, there are different products in different places. The Canaan Fair Trade that I was talking about is set in a it's in in the country near um, a city called Janine, which is in the northwest of Palestine and it's near a little village called Bakim, which is you know, an ancient village, got a famous church in it, 
so this is where Kanang Fair Trade is. It's an absolutely beautiful um, area, sort of surrounded by hills and olive groves, basically. The man, Nasser, who I was talking about before, who set up Kanang Fair Trade, he and others also set up a group of cooperatives, the, like the olive farmers and the women who make some of the dry goods are in these cooperatives, and it's through the cooperatives that they get their wage. And, I mean, I can't tell you exactly how much they get because this is not something that we, we hear about, but um, they've been certified as a fair trade organisation by the sort of global fair trade group. So I can only assume that it's bona fide. I mean, I know it is bona fide. We also sell soaps, which are also organic and fair trade, and they come from a town called uh, Nablus, which is sort of further south in the West Bank. So they, I don't feel that they're actually organised in cooperatives, but they're also certified as fair trade. So, so I, again, know that the people making those soaps will be getting a, a fair wage. It's not just wages, it's also conditions, it's also about you know, not exploiting children, etc. And this company, Navalis Soap Company, if your listeners want to Google it, it's an interesting company, and it's been in existence since, I think, 1642, something like that. Anyway, a long time. <laughs> They've been making soap, still sort of in the traditional ways. So that's the soap company. And then we also buy products, this is not food, this is not such stuff either, but from um, two other organisations in the Gaza Strip. And I, I feel that this is sort of a really important part of what we do because of the situation in West Bank is bad and Gaza is even worse. So one of the groups, organisations, is called Afaluna Crafts and they're a society for deaf children established in 1992. It's an institution that's devoted to education and services to people with hearing disabilities. You can imagine, you know, the numbers of bombs that have dropped by Israel on the in Gaza Strip over the last many years. It's not surprising there are a lot of people in Gaza who have um, hearing problems. They have a workshop that makes all kinds of carpentry, ceramics, um, embroideries, and we import, well, mostly embroideries, I guess, from them. And again, um, so, and so this organisation and the next one I'm going to talk about, it's mainly women who are making these things. They mostly make them at home. Again, they have been certified as fair trade. So, you know, what they actually get per piece, I couldn't tell you, but like these organisations are not for profit, just like we are not for profit. So, so the fourth uh, organisation is called Salafa Embroidery. And that was set up, actually, in 1950s, a very long time ago, set up by UNRWA, which is the United Nations agency that was established to look after Palestinian refugees. So after 1948, when Israel was established, and people may or may not know that created a huge refugee problem, something like 750,000, I think, Palestinians had to leave their homes, thinking that they were going to come back, but of course they haven't been able to come back. So this United Nations organisation was set up to sort of serve their needs. And so they also set up this embroidery project which works in the refugee camps. There's eight refugee camps in the Gaza Strip. So there's women again who are um, making beautiful, beautiful embroidery, shawls and scarves and purses and all kinds of things, all hand scarves. 
uh, cushion covers. Yeah, very beautiful. Some of them are in the traditional Palestinian motifs and then some others and colours and some some others are more kind of modern <laughs> taste. And they also get a, a, a reasonable wage for what they're doing. And given the, the economic situation in Gaza and the unemployment level, which is so high, um, over 45%, I think, in Gaza, that's a good thing to be buying um, these products, I think, and, and selling them here. So, again, that people here get to hear a bit about the situation in Gaza, but and they're helping these individuals. They're also acquiring some really beautiful products at the same time. So, for Australians, it's win-win. I'd imagine, as you said, that there are certain problems that you have to face to get stuff out of West Bank, but it must be doubly mm. hard to get stuff out of Gaza. Yes and no, <laughs> actually. You would, you would think so, but actually, because the products that we buy from Gaza, as I was just describing, because they are light, like as in embroideries, you know, don't, do not weigh very much, so we actually send them by plane. And so they, get, they have to get from Gaza to Tel Aviv airport and then they fly and it seems to have not been a problem unless there's a complete shutdown in Gaza and the Israelis are bombing or something then of course it is a problem but apart from that kind of situation which does happen quite regularly we can order something and get it in a few weeks after but the real problem is the freight that comes on ship from um, the West Bank. That's where the real problem lies. And we've been able to sort of do it. it. It takes a long time. The Israelis put on a lot of taxes and customs duties and make it as difficult as possible for Palestinians to actually um, earn an income, basically. Now, because of COVID, it's actually got a lot worse. And freight costs, I think, probably all over the world because there aren't as many ships travelling with their containers. So all the freight costs have gone up a lot. And in fact, we kind of we, we need to order more goods, but we are thinking we actually cannot afford to do it because if you double, if the freight costs are doubled, then we have to increase the cost of the goods that we sell here, and you know it could be prohibitive for people to buy them. So we're a bit in a holding pattern at the moment. This is a problem not just for us, but you know anyway, importing or business in general is you know at a bit of a standstill, and particularly importing stuff. But we do, we still have a reasonable amount of products left and it's all available on our website, which we'd love your listeners to have a look at. So the, the, it's just pfta.org.au. We have an online shop. Have members of your group travelled to Palestine to meet with some of your partners? Yes, well, I have. Jennifer, my colleague who does a lot of work in the organisation, she has. In fact, most of us have, and three of the members of the committee are Palestinians, so obviously <laughs> they have, or they've come from there. No, we have, actually, we've had a couple of Palestinian parents of Palestinians, they were born here, and they actually may not have gone back. But, uh, yes, so I, I've been there, well, a few times, actually, but the last time was in a few years ago now, and I met with Kanan, uh, who I was telling you before, I went and had a look at the premises and looked at their bottling facilities, which are absolutely state-of-the-art. They've got German machinery to, you know, make the olive oil, and it's all beautiful and spotless and very impressive, very impressive place. And it's really good to meet our suppliers 
And also I was able to meet some of the farmers who produced the olive oil. And in fact, stayed with one of them in his house, a little village nearby. And of course, he was extremely hospitable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's kind of like completing the cycle, I suppose, you'd say. <laughs> I, I met a few of the farmers, the olive farmers, actually. And they all had very good things to say about Canaan and how they were treated and good to meet the producers themselves, hear yeah. their stories. In that area of Palestine, are they under any threat that the Defence Force will come in and rip up their olive trees? Well, the whole of West Bank is, you know, it, it can happen any time. But I think it happens more in areas that are near settlements. This particular area where um, Canaan is, there are no um, Israeli settlements sort of in the vicinity that one could see because usually the settlements are built on hills, hilltops, you know, get the best views, etc. And there were certainly, there were none that I could see around there. But there are many other places, you know, near the walls, the, the, the wall that Israel has built supposedly to you know, protect them. Olive trees get uprooted all the time. And also, I don't know if people know that the West Bank is divided into three sections, A, B and C. The majority of it is in Area C, and Area C is, is Israeli controlled. There's a sort of combination of Israel and Palestinian control. And Area A is basically the few big cities that there are in the West Bank. So Ramallah, some people might have heard of, and um, like Janine that I was talking about before, and Nablus. Yeah, there's only three or four like big cities, and they are controlled by Palestinian authorities. So it's sort of like municipal control, really. But in Area C, which is in the sort of Jordan Valley, which is a more fertile area, so it's an area like towards Jordan, so towards the west. Olive trees are pulled out all the time. Not to mention, you know, houses demolished, etc. So it's ongoing, and tears come to my eyes when I see those olive trees uprooted, especially the ones that have been in the ground for possibly hundreds of years. It's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking and such a pointless exercise. And one of the oils that we sell is called rumi, which means Roman in um, Arabic. The rumi tree is purported to actually come from Roman times because the Romans occupied Palestine way back. Very old tree, or you know, not obviously the same trees, but the seeds that have come and have come over the centuries, and it's yeah, it's a beautiful oil too. Just talk a little bit more about the Nablus soap. Some of the ingredients are milk, honey, and mud from the de- Dead Sea. Where does the honey come from? Good question. Well, I imagine that it would come from the area locally because I know that they produce honey in Palestine, so I couldn't tell you precisely, but I know, you know, where there's hills, where there's flowers, there'll be bees, hopefully, and um, honey. And I know that uh, Canaan, they used to, they don't make it anymore, but they used to make this tapenade called honey olive spread. So it was kind of like, we used to sort of sell it, we used to call it Palestinian Vegemite. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a sort of combination of the sweet from the honey and then the olives made it obviously, you know, it's a tartar, sour taste. And people either loved it or hated it, a bit like Vegemite. 
anyway, but they've stopped making it. Actually, they also used to make honey, you know, just pure honey, and they don't sell that anymore either. So maybe the honey is harder to get at. I'm not sure. But anyway, I know the honey from the Nabla soap would come from local area. And all, all the products. So you've had a look at some of the sites, have you? Yes, I have. I've put my order in, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure that, you know, all the, all the um, ingredients that they add to the soap would be local ingredients, including the Dead Sea mud, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say about the Dead Sea mud. Who harvests the mud from the Dead Sea? Some part of the Dead Sea is in occupied Palestine, is in the West Bank, so that Palestinians would be able to access that. And then there's another part that's sort of in Israel, 948 Israel, so that's sort of the Israeli Dead Sea, if you like, sort of divided, pretty crazy. They get the mud from the the Palestinian um, part of the, the sea and put it through some process. I don't know, I mean, I've actually swum in the Dead Sea, and I don't know that you would have to process it that much, actually, to make it into the soap. Because it's pretty pure and, you know, as it is. But I'm sure they would do something to it. I don't, I don't know the exact process that they use to make it into Dead Sea Mud. The soap itself is definitely black. I can doubt for that. Probably better than a mud pack that some women put on their faces. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's very good for the skin. <laughs> <laughs> so is the, that soap. And there's another soap that we sell. That's, it's just a bar, so unwrapped. So it's very kind of environmentally kind of... You know, good to be able to sell something that hasn't got plastic or whatever wrapping. It's basically just an olive oil, it's olive oil soap with some glycerine in it, and we just sell it as a shampoo bar. And people are using it as a shampoo as well as for their skin, and so it's fabulous. And s- so, um, it's, yeah, there's a variety of soaps. I suppose it was in- inevitable that there would be a kefir face mask. Yes, well, it took us a little while to find the right place and, you know, people to make it because uh, now I wish we'd done it sort of a month ago, but anyway, it doesn't matter. There's a, a refugee camp in uh, just outside of Nablus called Alata Camp. And actually when I, I was reading a bit about this camp just before this um, interview with you, and I actually didn't realise that in the West Bank there are still, still, so this is from 1948, and then after 1967, there are 19 refugee camps in the West Bank, which is quite shocking when you think about it. So in this camp, houses about 18,000 people in a, an area of, I think it's a quarter of a quarter square kilometre. Think about that, well, how much space a quarter square kilometre is, 18,000 people. So it's um, pretty jam-packed. In this camp, there's a woman very entrepreneurial woman, so or Mahmoud, that's her name. She was a seamstress. And she got the idea that after COVID started that actually um, could be a good thing to fear face marks. She is working with, I think, not a lot of other women, about five other women in this camp, um, and they are sewing very quickly, hopefully, <laughs> as we speak, because we've ordered quite a lot. And in fact, I hate to say this to your listeners, but the take-up was so swift, we've ordered 300 masks and actually there's not many many left. So they are selling these masks to a small company called Holy Goat Artisan Oasis. It's a Palestinian guy based in East Jerusalem. 
and he asked me if I would talk about his organisation because he was he set up he and some other people set up this Holy Ghost Oasis to give a platform to different artisans of Palestine to reach the world. So it's kind of like these other organisations I've been talking about. It's assisting the economy of Palestine. It's also assisting in the sort of promotion of, you know, the entity and the fact that Palestinians as a people have a history and a culture. And whereas there are, you know, many people, states in the world that would like to deny that there's such a, you know, people as Palestinians, whether it's through the kafir masks or, you know, the embroideries or the soaps or whatever, it's just one of many ways of kind of telling the world, given that, as he said, because of COVID and the travel restrictions, it's not like people can come and visit them. They're also selling embroidery made in, uh, by women in Hebron and um, other products from the Galilee. So the Galilee is an area which is in Israel. There's Palestinians who are in Israel. So that's the story of the women who are making the mask. I think we'll probably have to order some more in another couple of months um, if there's a lot of interest. So I'd be happy for people to um, email us or um, contact us in some way if they're, if they're interested. It was really quite an amazing sort of response um, that came through Jessica, who I believe you know, from APAN. Yes. Well, they put it out on their list and it was just, we were inundated. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Which is good. Okay, Barbara, if you'd just like to give that webpage again so that people can hopefully put in an order for some of your beautiful products and, and they are all displayed for people to have a look at. That's right. pfta.org.au And if anyone would like to email us with any questions or comments or anything, actually probably the easiest way is to go through the website. There's a contact us button and we will get the message and we will respond. Thank you so much. That's all right. I've been speaking with Barbara Block from Palestine Fair Trade Australia. 3CR are selling kafir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.